Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hello and welcome back to There's No Business Like. I'm Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts. Here in studio with me is Josh Benson. What's up? Josh Benson from Marion, Illinois. And Brian. Brian Zelmer from KU Presents. Danielle. Danielle Van Hook from the Alden. Kevin. Kevin Maynard from Rock Island, Illinois. Excellent. Well, I'm so glad we're all here today. I have a really wonderful conversation in store for all of you with Christy Dorch. To kick things off, I wanted to ask you all, since we're all performers, either currently or in a former life, what is your most favorite thing you've ever done on stage, whether that be music or maybe a theater performance? Done on stage or done on stage in a show? Done on stage in a show. Well, actually, Josh has me curious now. What the <laughs> Can we get both stories from you, please? <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Josh. Well, it's not my favorite like musical. My favorite thing I've ever performed in is Rocky Horror Show Live. I can see that. The crowd energy and crowd interaction is the most amazing thing. The most challenging thing is when somebody gives a callback that you've never heard before <laughs> and you're wearing a golden speedo and you can't really contain laughter very well in just a golden speedo. Why were you wearing your podcast uniform? <laughs> <laughs> we're not telling anyone that I brought this with me. <laughs> but uh, but no, it's just there's there's a, a crazy energy with that interactive of a crowd that you feed off of in that show. And it's truly amazing to perform in for that reason. So I had this really incredible experience in college where we had a lot of different intensives. And one of them that came somewhat regularly was um, a trapeze artist. And so he would build these trapezes in our black box. And we would have this like incredible two weeks of learning to fly. And hopefully nobody has ever seen me dance because I'm not great at it. <laughs> like it's an incredible experience, but there's like maybe two moves I can do. So we did a whole trapeze show once and I somehow got cast in it. Unclear as to how that happened. And I had a solo. The idea of the solo was basically somebody's joy in like first learning how to use the trapeze. And it just sort of like bottled all of the things I really loved for it. And it was just me kind of being goofy and silly and playing. And I'll remember that forever. I recently got back on stage over this past year and I was in a show called Silent Sky, which is a really great show, but it was in a really cool space that was in the round. And one, the story is really great, but there's a moment in the show where something like big and shocking happens and there's something that breaks on stage. And every night, like you could feel the tension in that audience where people like, as soon as it happened, it was like, <gasps> And that silence uh, was always just like a really cool experience uh, that I will remember forever. I was in college and I was performing in a in a new show by Bill Grant called One Table, Two Chairs. There was a moment where my character's mother had just recently passed and I had this big monologue and this one performance, something happened where it, it was just, I, I can't explain it, it was like um, otherworldly where... I could feel the audience through the air and like I could make them inhale and exhale with me. It was like we were so connected. It was like just such a magical like it just had such an impact on me, like that magical feeling where I literally can control the, the audience's breathing. I mean, it was like static electricity in there. I, I don't know how to explain it, but it was just an incredible feeling that 
that I wish everyone could experience at least once. That sounds amazing. And of That's... course, my character cries in it, and I made the whole audience cry like with me. Wow. And it was just yeah, one of those one of those moments. <laughs> I, I it didn't happen even every night at the show. It was literally this one performance where just it was magic. Like there was just something special in the air that night. That's the beauty of live theater. It's it's so unpredictable, and you just never know quite what's going to happen. I love that. Um, similarly to the story you're going to hear in Christy's interview, uh, I had a return to the stage as well um, when I was up in Traverse City. I had not performed on stage in a show in any sort of significant way because I was too busy running a theater and doing all sorts of other things for, I think, almost 10 years. I finally convinced myself it was time. I went and auditioned at our local community theater and was cast in Mary Poppins, which I wasn't really sure I was going to like the show because I had seen the Broadway tour. I didn't really love it. But being in it was such an incredible experience. And I got to do all these different parts and even sub in for like a, a solo uh, one performance when people were sick. And um, it just really helped build community for me and rebuild my love of performance. And I mean, I got to hoof in that show uh, mm -hmm. during step in time and I'm a tap dancer. And it was just a yeah, it was, I think, one of my favorite things I've ever been in on stage for certain. Well, thank you all for sharing. I love hearing these stories. We're going to dive right into my interview with Christy. Hope you all enjoy. Hi, I am Christy George, and my title sort of depends on what day it is. Uh, the overarching title for me is Strategy Consultant, though... Um, I have been a little bit of everything in the arts and in the for-profit world. Well, welcome so much to There's No Business Like. I am so excited to chat with you today. You have had a long and storied career, so I just want to dive right into it and ask you about your origin story. What was your path into the performing arts industry, and how did you get to where you are today? I started when I was four dancing, and I never stopped. I never looked back. Um, I got into choir, I got into acting and school plays and then moved from there and ended up being one of those people who knew from the time I was about 11 what I wanted to do with my life. And my degree is in performance, actually. Um, I was a triple threat on the road for about six years. And in that time, did everything from Playland Park, which is where Tom Hanks's movie Big was filmed, um, to random resorts in the middle of Indiana to children's theater that was touring through Florida, you name it. And during that time, uh, I was really fortunate when I, where I went to college to get my degree, which is Western Kentucky, they really focused on, you need to understand everything that goes into doing a show in order to be good at it and to be marketable. So I went into my profession knowing tour management knowing um, tour accounting, how to put a show together, who all the players were. I did costume design, did lighting design. I was very fortunate. That education uh, gave me work for a long time, but my family is all very creative, but basically accountants. Um, that was what they did because they didn't really feed their creative side as much as I did. Um, so I have the math brain too. And when I got tired of living out of my suitcase, I came back to Nashville and I just said, you know, I want to find something to do here for a bit and got really lucky with the Performing Arts Center looking for someone to lead their ticketing and customer service department and took that on for a few years, moved up in the ranks, uh, took over subscriber services, took over group sales, took over F&B, took over basic programming, alternative programming, and then ultimately Broadway programming. 
in the middle there somewhere. I left for like a year and a half and went to Westport, Connecticut to help reopen the historic theater up there. I have really been able to reinvent myself over the years. And I've had a lot of people who took the time to recognize skill sets that I might not have otherwise chased. Um, so I had the opportunity to get in the middle of things that I'd never done before. And pre-COVID, I also had the opportunity to chase things that I love, which is new work. Um, I love the idea of new work creation, how it develops, how it gets together, and how it comes to, to fruition. And I've been able to produce a couple of shows as well as get back on stage this last year. So, you know, it depends on what day of the week as to what I'm doing. Wow, that is really amazing. And I love <laughs> your return to the stage. That is, I think, something that folks that have been in the industry for a long time that maybe start as performers are a little hesitant to do later on in their careers. So what has that return been like for you? Oh, it was like the perfect collision of events. Um, it just so happened that somebody that I think is one of the best creative minds was doing a new project for the summer. And he kind of got so many of the Nashville traditional actors out of retirement, along with a lot of the new amazing talent and put us all on stage together. And it was it was a dream experience so much so that I'm like, I don't know if I want to try it again. Cause that was really like perfect. <laughs> it was a great, yeah, a really great creative experience. I love that. All of those things that you've done from performer to moving into administration, what was your favorite role? What was your favorite part that you've played thus far in your career? That's like picking your favorite child. I don't, I will, I'll pick one. As much as I love new work and as much as I love producing, as much as I loved acting, I really, really, really loved programming for the Performing Arts Center in my hometown. There was something very fulfilling about bringing art, bringing events to my hometown that might not have otherwise come. And it was especially fulfilling because being born and raised here and watching the city change and grow, I felt like I had sort of an insider scoop on how people were going to respond to things and at what pace they were going to respond to things. I agree with you. There is something a programmer myself, there is something really special about that curation process and thinking about what your community is going to respond to. So, and being a native and seeing those changes happen in Nashville, what was that curation process like kind of over time? And did that change at all? Or what was kind of the magic formula that you found really worked for a time and place that you were in? We were always sort of walking that fine line of people are not necessarily coming to Nashville to see Broadway. They can probably do it somewhere closer to home or they'll go to New York. So we really had to focus in on our in-city audience or the bedroom communities. But then we could have special pop-up events and those could actually bring a tour to us, like whether it was a group tour or tourists or different people coming to the CDC. Um, we just had to look at like, hey, Aiva's in town. We should look at doing something that's going to appeal to that group that they might not otherwise get. Americana Fest is in town. We should do something that's focused around that. And the other side of that is that there is an expectation when you're visiting Nashville of what you're going to get. I'll blow the first one out of the water for you right now. Everybody who was born and raised in Nashville does not like country music. I am sorry to break that to you, <laughs> but they don't. I love any kind of music. To listen to my iPod on any particular day makes you go, what are you listening to? Because it could be opera. It could be Hank Jr. You don't know. Anyway, what was most challenging about curation over the last 20 years was where's our niche? 
And how do we reach the people who are going to respond to that? So finding your place, um, like one of the things I'll tell you is really hard in Nashville. Mass marketing in the city, it's challenging. Nashville is still very much about relationships. It is not Chicago. It's not Atlanta. It's got a lot of people. It's got a lot of art. It's got a lot of class. But people know people. Like you can still go into the Walgreens and somebody go, how you doing, ladybug? <laughs> Mass marketing is not going to appeal to that. Sure. Being one-on-one with someone is. And so that sort of curation of really listening to your community, because you had to, you had to hear what they were saying um, in order to get them in the building. And what is that balance then of listening to your community, getting input, talking with folks, and they say, hey, I'd really love to see so-and-so on the stage, or can you bring in this show or whatever? The balance of then saying, well, I want to push the envelope a little bit, or I want to introduce something new that we haven't seen before. What is that balance? I think this is a conversation we have actually quite frequently in the industry. It is. For me personally, it, it became about trust. I had a collective group of people, um, whether it was my concert goers or or Broadway people or whatever they were, that I could bounce off and go, do you think the people you know are ready for this yet? Because we're ready for it. And there were times also that we just pushed the envelope and we just said, if you're not ready, the rest of the world is, so we're going to push. We're we're going to challenge you. Um, and so my philosophy of programming often was, I need you to trust me, not only things you know the title of. And so I really did what I could to make sure whether it was one of our resident companies and I really wanted to lift them up or it was one of our local theaters or a new project to try to be the person in the community saying, look, here's why I think this is important. Was there a moment where that really worked and, you know, everyone you had like a surprise hit on your hands and then on the flip side, maybe a moment where that went terribly, horribly wrong. (laughs) The one that I'm thinking of immediately for the terribly, horribly wrong, I'm just, I'm afraid I'm not going to mention names because it was terribly, horribly wrong because no one came. It was not my field of dreams. Like I finally got buy-in from the board and staff and I started this little very intimate music series and it was meant to challenge. It was meant to really feature not legends like, you know, giant things where they're going to charge $200 for tickets, but legends that you might not know the name of, but you should. So it really was the Just Trust Me series. There were people who trusted me, but it wasn't enough to maintain the series. So it was um, was really hard to let it go because the people who attended were passionate. They knew what they were getting. They wanted it to continue and to have to be the person to go, unless you're going to bring 10 of your friends next time, I don't, it's not going to happen. But then there are things like, you know, we spent, it will go unnamed as well, but We spent almost a year trying to explain to our supporters, look, we're going to bring this show. It's going to challenge people. They're going to be unhappy people. We just need to face it. We need to prepare ourselves for it. Our job is not to prescribe. It is to describe. I'm not going to tell you what you should see. I'm going to tell you what's out there and hand it to you. And then I need to have a conversation with you if you don't understand why we brought it but I'm not going to prescribe to you. That was the surprise thing because we were all prepared. I mean, I was there from an hour before show through intermission and after the show every day going, okay, I'm just, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. Just come out and yell at me. Who's going to yell at me? No one came out and yelled at me. I mean, at the end of the run, we were like, what just happened? Did we make it through that with nobody upset? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And it taught us, okay, we're being a little overprotective. Got it. So in this current moment, where do you see 
programming going where we're post pandemic, you know, really for the most part. So in terms of, you know, Nashville and kind of beyond, I know you're really tuned in with what's happening across the country. Where do you see programming going? Do you think folks are going to still want to take some risks? One of the reasons it's hard to say what I'm doing on what day is because when COVID hit, of course, there was no need for programmers. So after a bit, I started my own consulting firm. It was really focused on helping nonprofits through the last two years. And it was focused once we started reopening on how do you reopen? How do you respond to safety concerns? How do you deal with the customer base that only wants to come out if it's this artist and you don't make them wear a mask or, you know, it's just a million questions. So it was the strategy of who's your audience? How are you getting back in the building? How are you continuing to build a relationship? And how are you going to keep your doors open? It's not just about, I got my doors open. How are you going to keep it? The interesting thing is I think people want to come back out, but they're being a bit more selective about where and when and who. So as a programmer, it's really challenging to know, am I top on somebody's list? They may have been coming to me for years. They may be one of my reliable customers. I always send my mailers to, whatever. Is it going to be me they're going to come see or is it going to be Keith Urban? What are they going to choose? People are going to go if it's a huge show or if it's a, this may be the last time I see this artist, um, oddly enough, and getting out in with thousands of people rather than, you know, a smaller intimate theater. And then if there was somebody really good who was in a 500 seat theater, they'd be like, meh, I'm going to wait till next year. This is the hardest period of time that I've ever seen in predicting how customers are going to respond. How do you end up not taking that personally as a programmer, because you have to make these choices, right? And kind of like draw a line in the sand and say, we're going to, we're going to present these things and, you know, we'll see what happens. How do you then not take those consumer choices personally? Oof. I, I don't think that has anything to do with COVID. I think as a programmer, if you do take it personally, and I think we all do, um, you have to kind of let that just go and keep going forward because once again, strategy, it is not about today. It is not about this one event. It is about what we're building to tomorrow and what we're building past that and where we're going. Because where you're going and having a vision in mind, the entire organization is like, this is what we're trying to do. We're going to go down this path. If it doesn't succeed, we may shift over here. But ultimately, this is always our mission. This is always our goal. That's what keeps people loyal to you. That's what keeps people coming back to you. That's what helps new people trust you, that you're not wishy-washy. Our role as a programmer is to serve the entire community, not part of it. I love that philosophy. I think that's really smart. What does being a strategy consultant actually mean? And how did all of those roles <laughs> um, prepare you to start your own company and move into this space still in the performing arts world, but from a really different perspective. The definition of strategy consultant is really just strategy. And what I mean by that is for one organization, I might be doing the strategy of building their donor base. And for another group, I'm doing the strategy of reopening and refinding their customer. Or I could be strategy and marketing and we're talking about branding and what message do you think you're sending? And then let's talk about what message you're actually sending. A strategy consultant for me, my, my business is about what is it you're trying to do? And then let's evaluate what you're doing to get there and making sure that has the same goal. Because you can have this great plan over here and this goal over here and the two never meet. My career has really opened up the opportunity for me at a very high level to look at things and help people understand you're doing a great job of getting where you want to go. 
Let me help you finesse it. Or being able to go, I hear you, but that is not, you think you're saying this to your customers or to your donors? You're not saying that. You know, it's interesting. I've had a couple of people recently ask me about, I don't know why this has come up recently, but you know, how do you do all these different things? Why have you done all these things? Why would you do this? Why would you go into food and beverage when you never did that? And I'm like, it's just another role. It's learning how it works. It's understanding the ins and outs and then going, oh, well, that would work better if we tried this. So when might an organization want to bring in a consultant like you to help them with a project or a process? It's a really awesome question. The easy answer, and I guess nothing's really easy, but I think the easy answer to that is that if you're in a space with your other collaborators or staff, whoever it is, whoever's in the room collaborating with you, if you find that you have the same goal in mind, but none of you can seem to get to the activation of this task or that task or this task without people being like, why am I always compromising? I don't see it this way. If you find that you just keep hitting the wall and it doesn't have to be a bad wall, it could be just like three out of four of you agree. And it continually is three out of four of you rather than four out of four of you. That's probably when you just need an outside perspective to look at what you're trying to do and go, oh, and nine times out of 10, it's communication. It's, it's the way you talk and it's the way you present something that just isn't digestible to someone else. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean they're wrong. It just, it's the way you're framing it, the way you're putting it in perspective for someone that they can't see. Frankly, like coming out of the last two and a half years, I feel like our communication skills are a little rusty. Oh, we've had to communicate in such a different way coming back in person. Like, are you seeing that you really have to do some coaching around just having face-to-face interaction? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's something, it's something as simple as people getting used to, you know, I can see all of you. I can see that you're fidgeting. I can see that you're, you know, pushing your shoe on and off. I can see that you wish you were in your shorts and not your dress pants. But it is, it's so fascinating because one of the things I also studied in college was body language, which was very helpful as an actor. I had not realized how helpful it would be in the corporate world. This coming out of the pandemic and this coming out of video and we're able to redo our background if we want to. We're able to only dress from, you know, the neck up. We're able to whatever that able is. When we're no longer able to do that, our communication style sometimes changes. I have watched people in a room together, like once they're back person to person, be so unbelievably uncomfortable with one another because you're now getting the energy of that other person. If you have that level of discomfort now with with that situation, how do you break through that? There are some people who would say, just address it and you can move on. No, it doesn't work. It just usually makes the person shut down more. I think we have an interesting tool and put it with what we knew before. I think we have the greatest success opportunity because if we say, look, we can spend two hours together in person, but then we got to go back to just doing video because it's too much. It's For some people, it's just information overloaded. They can't handle it. So, and I think there's audiences that are having the same problem. Like, ooh, please don't do a three-hour show. I just, I can't, I can't. I can't be in a space with people that long that I don't know. Um, So I think it's really taking the time to understand our style of communicating and working together has changed. Whether we like it or not, it has changed. And we are going to have the most success when we ebb and flow with what's working and what's not working. And I'm not saying that we forever have to go, oh, I can only have two hours with you and then I got to go. But we do have to say, let's do this in baby steps. Let's do it together because everyone is overworked. Everyone is understaffed. The best thing you can do for yourself or you as a leader can do 
is make sure that the mental health of the people around you is strong. You can help with the mental health element by just saying, look, if you need to go in your office and be on Zoom with this meeting for the next hour, fine. If that's going to make you more comfortable and get more done, I, I support you in that. Some people really feel the need to all be back in the room together. And I love the energy of a room. I play off that. But there's some people that it's just too much. Well, there's something to be said for that, like special connection, the creativity, um, the hallway conversations when you're back in space with people where the ideas bubble and bounce and you're like, oh, hey, I want to talk to you about that. And that sparks the thing. You don't get that same um, spark over a video conferencing. There's a lot of value in that, but I can totally understand your point of it. It can be overwhelming. So one more question about kind of strategy and leadership. I think probably folks are heading back into strategic planning because things have shifted so much and their their plans from pre-pandemic are out of date. What are three things arts professionals need to know about strategic planning? Well, let me start by saying I would not begin to assume that I am someone who should fully lead a strategic plan. Mine is really more, let's get into minutia. But with that in mind, and with the idea that we're coming back from such a time of lack of connection, and whether we all realize it or not, we all have a lot of grief to deal with in this industry from what we have lost. Just from the fact that we have lost so much institutional knowledge just rips me up to think about all the people who are no longer part of the industry just because the industry went away. Going into strategic plan, let's talk about what your strengths are, not your weaknesses. I don't like the negative terms, but where are your strengths and where are the strengths of everybody else in the room and how do you make them come together? Figure out what your mission is. And the third thing is, who is your community? Because it's not just you, it's not just your people who've changed. Your community has changed as a result of the last two years. And they're talking in a different way and they're absorbing marketing in a different way. They're thinking about philanthropic giving in a different way. If you don't know who your audience is post-pandemic, it doesn't matter what your mission is. You know, one of the things that the arts does so very well is it communicates opposites in a way that doesn't say it's bad. They're going to be people who have different opinions to you. It's okay. But I, I'm pretty comfortable saying the last two plus years has made it not okay. The distance, the lack of socialization, the solidarity that's happened, we've lost the middle. We've completely lost the ability to see gray. And the arts is the piece that brings gray. And we get people in a room together that might not ever be in a room together. We have to figure out how to get back there with audiences that are as polarized as they are. <laughs> this is an audio podcast, but I, I'm giving Christy snaps snaps. <laughs> So Christy, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, so we actually know each other through the network of state and regional presenters consortiums through my work with Michigan Presenters Network and your role as executive director of Tennessee Presenters. So what exactly is a presenters network? Um, and can you tell us a little bit about the goals and objectives of Tennessee Presenters? Yeah, um, once again, things that have changed a lot. So most of the presenter consortiums have been about what's called block booking, which is the idea that you can help move an artist or an act across your state or across your region in a way that makes it less travel show to show for an artist, which helps their costs and helps their just rest and ability to recover. Um, but it also helps the presenters and all these organizations get a lower fee, negotiate better rates, because you're getting, you're not just getting me, you're getting four of me. The consortiums are meant to help presenters who can't otherwise get to 
conferences, don't have a relationship with specific artists or agents to make things happen and know who to call. So that's really where Tennessee Presenters has been since 2006, is really helping all the different venues, especially the smaller venues, have access to information they would not otherwise have. If they're trying to book something, but they don't have a relationship, but Memphis and Nashville do, then we can help them get on that train. In the last couple of years, it's been, Tennessee Presenters specifically, has been trying to grow like other presenters that it really admires, like Michigan Presenters, like Ohio, Florida. But we've been trying to grow and be more. And what I mean by that is really developing our electronic presence. So our website, our database, we are not just about presenters. There are a lot of these consortiums that are just about presenters, and that is fine. For Tennessee presenters, for us to really be successful, we believe it's important for us to be a bit more regional because, for example, there's not really a strong representation in the block booking world in Kentucky. Some of our relatives in um, you know, Alabama or Mississippi, they don't really have that access. So we've kind of become a bit more regional than just state specific, but we've also brought agents and artists in the mix. And our philosophy on that of bringing agents and artists in is because it's about the ecosystem. By bringing artists, agents, and presenters all together, we all understand what each other's trouble is, what we're trying to fill, what we're trying to accomplish, where we run into problems. And if we all understand that, then the negotiation is much easier and we actually build a relationship that has a longer life rather than I'm doing one show and moving on. And so in my mind, that's what these consortiums do, whether it's just presenters or whether it's the whole ecosystem. It's about helping get more art out and in front of people and in our communities and serving our communities in a very specific way. How much, I mean, it, this is all about networking, right? It is essentially boils down to relationships and networking and getting in the same room as your colleagues from across the state and being able to build those relationships. So then what would you say to somebody who's new to the industry that is looking for connection, looking for some of these resources, but says like, I don't have the time. I am so overworked, overburdened. Like I can't take an hour out of my month to do a, a PD session, or I can't take a day away from the office to go, you know, to the Tennessee Presenters Conference. Like what would you say to them in terms of the value proposition of being a part of something like a presenter's network? First of all, I would say I have to own that I have been that person many times in my life. Um, you can't be good at what you do if you don't take care of you. That is the very first step. And if you really want to be in this industry long-term and you really love it, if you don't take time to better what you do and you just keep going down the same path, you're eventually going to be out of date. You're not, you're not going to be connected anymore. And there are things that it may seem like, oh my gosh, I've got like 14 things that have to be done in the next two hours. I cannot take time to step away and have this presenters meeting or do this professional development or do some yoga and take a breath. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Those 12 to 14 things will be there when you get back. The difference is you'll come back to those 12, 14 things, having talked to people who are up against the same things as you. And I cannot tell you, I'm assuming you'll feel the same way, Katie, that, you know, even our meeting that we had last week, just hearing other people say things that I'm like, oh, thank God, it's not just me. <laughs> Okay. Okay. I'm not on an island. All right. And we, none of us may have the answer how to fix it, but at least we know we're in the boat together. The camaraderie um, of having all of your colleagues in one space and to your point of going like, oh gosh, I'm not alone in this. Uh, my feelings are valid. The stress is valid. That sense of 
sense of community is incredibly valuable. And Christy, I'll share with you my first job in the industry. I worked, I was the executive director of a very tiny little historic venue in West Michigan. And I didn't know that Michigan had a presenters network. No one reached out to me. I didn't have any resources. I was completely on an island by myself trying to, at 23, trying to figure out how to manage a historic venue completely by myself, how to book acts, how to write contracts. I think I'm getting hives for you. (laughs) It it was an amazing experience, but tough. And that's a whole different story. Um, But I just wish that I had that resource. I had somebody I could go and ask questions to that I could call up and say, Hey, I know you booked this artist before. What are they like to work with? Like, what do you, what's your recommendation for negotiating with their agent? Like whatever those questions are. um, I just think the relationships, the PD, the networking, the camaraderie is like totally worth that hour a month or two days out of your year or whatever that is. Um, the connections, the relationships are incredible that you get out of it. You learn so much and it furthers your career. I'm a huge proponent of taking time for PD, whether it's virtual or in person. I just think the learning never stops. Things constantly change. And how do you keep up with those changes unless you're taking time to listen, learn, have conversations. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think it goes back to where we started this conversation that, uh, as I said, I would not claim to be someone who can lead a whole strategic plan, but I am one of those people that can step back and do a professional development, go, look, I understand where you are. I've been there. Let's get a little higher up. Like just take a step, take a breath, move a little higher up and realize that some of the minutia you're fighting through doesn't actually matter. Two weeks from now, you're not going to think about that. Let that go and refocus. Yeah. It's a great reset. And going back to like thousand, thousand foot view of like why we do what we do. So I really do think that a presenter's network or any service to the field organization that you want to be a part of is a worthwhile investment of time and energy. It is indeed. Think back to the start of your career. Maybe when you're like graduating school, heading out on the road for the first time. Uh, What do you know now that you wish you had known then? I wish I would have known how fast things change and how impactful little things that you do can be. And I'm not just talking about from stage, but with your fellow cast members, with your fellow team leads, whatever it is that sometimes taking that moment in a field that's constantly changing to say, I see you, I hear you, I'm in this with you, how can I help? We all got into this for a reason. We got into this because we love live events and the arts and having an impact for our community. We love seeing that one kid who writes a letter in crayon that just changed his life or, you know, that one adult, you know, we've done a couple of adult programs through the years and brought people into theater for the first time to watch them see this and to interact with it. It was like, oh, right. That's why I'm doing this. And whether, you know, I'm on stage, backstage, arts admin, whatever it is, remembering how fast things change and the impact you can have is why we do what we do. Love that. So what do you like most about working in the industry today? I have to say the people. It sounds so cheesy, but it's a different group of people. Like whether it's, once again, the actors, the managers, the whoever, but to watch other people be passionate, you know, even our our consortium calls, just to watch people start to interact and see them light and see what it's like, I love these people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Christy, thank you so much for taking all of this time today. I have so enjoyed our conversation. Um, I'm so glad that I've gotten to know you over the last two and a half years through our work with our, our presenters consortium and our networks. It's been a real pleasure to hear about 
your career today and what, you know, what has brought you to this moment. And thank you for sharing your wisdom and insights. It's, I think, an incredibly valuable conversation, especially for new folks coming into the field or those that are kind of staring at their to-do list and going, how am I going to accomplish all of this and still take care of myself at the end of the day? So thank you so much for sharing with us. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Christy. Who wants to start us off? Katie, I really appreciated your question about not taking it personally, because that is something I think we all sort of, you know, can struggle with as presenters. But I absolutely loved her response about, you know, it's not it's about building towards that goal and just, you know, remaining mission focused, which I think is, I mean, just a really good tool for nonprofits in general. And clearly, you know, comes from that strategy consultant background. I appreciated her answer to that question as well, because frankly, I do take it personally as a presenter when a program that I have really poured my heart and soul into researching and booking and presenting and doing strategy around just doesn't go quite the way that I hoped or the audience doesn't respond, you know, as we hoped. That's just because we're so passionate about what we do. But her advice was really wonderful. And like admitting they're like, yeah, that's it's hard not to do. Um, so I really appreciate what she had to say there, too. Well, usually the process of booking a show is a year. So it's like a year of your life you've been thinking about doing this. And then, you know, whenever it doesn't go perfectly, whenever you're somebody who, you know, really likes uh, to be perfect, <laughs> it figure. is hard not to take it personally. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's good advice to just always have in the back of your head. Yeah. It's, uh, similarly, I think she is taking approach that, you know, something that we've talked about on this podcast quite a bit. And I think that individually at our organizations, we're all sort of taking that approach about pushing your community and pushing your audience just a little bit further. Uh, so it, it's good to see that that's happening, especially like in Nashville, you know, I mean, because she's right when she was talking about just the fact that, you know, everybody thinks about country music. And that was my first thought. But obviously, like, you can't book just that. Well, and that that city is, is known for commercial music mm -hmm. on such a level all through the world that to do something, to be in a position where you're presenting and curating something of arts and culture within that environment, it's a, it's a stark contrast to the rest of the music industry in that area. And so it's, it's one bold, courageous, and then it's, it's also so needed as well to, to create more balanced offerings within that community. And so I think that's really important that that work is being done and that it's taking those steps to, to move forward with it. I really appreciated the fact that you brought up um, state consortiums and, and those types of meetings, Katie, um, because they are so important to so many people that can't get to the big convenings and the national and, and uh, regional convenings. So it's a lot of people's only way to have a connection to outside of their bubble of their theater or, you know, whatever they might be, whatever their organization is. And yeah. And I think the camaraderie and the connection that happens within a state consortium or a regional consortium is even more valuable today because we have all been through a lot, but, and you need that support network. And now with the challenges of touring and how expensive it is and some other things we've talked about in the past you need those routing partners you need people that you can communicate with you can rely on that you can you know do those routings um to help everybody in the long run because you can save money and you can make it make sense for both 
you as a presenter or a series of presenters and the artist at the same time. And the only way you build those relationships is by getting together, whether that be on Zoom or in person, regular meetings, conferences, those sorts of things. And those state and regional consortiums really help facilitate that. And a lot of our uh, consortium, state consortiums started out as block booking um, that was like their whole thing, like Pennsylvania presenters was literally just made to do block booking. And then we've evolved where that's hardly ever, if ever a thing for us. But, you know, hearing Christy talk about Tennessee, that that's a major part of their consortium. And so there are still places that blocks are still important more, you know, above and beyond just the typical routing kind of situation. So um, that was interesting to hear, too, how different parts of the country do different things. We have talked a lot about building relationships and, and the industry being relationship-based, but we've always talked about that from an agent and presenter standpoint. And I think it's really important to note that the state consortiums are there for relationship building within the presenters themselves. And that that allows for a, a wonderful opportunity to build those relationships because those relationships can be just as important in the industry as far as bouncing ideas off of, or even, you know, routing is, is very important for a lot of pricing uh, with certain shows. And so, you know, just knowing who's up the road and just outside of your marketing area that it works with helps tremendously. Yeah. I certainly, as a youth and family presenter, I have three to five partners in state where we're all outside each other's radius clauses. We all book very similarly. And I would not have those relationships without being involved with the Michigan Presenters Network. Also, personally, I've just developed some really wonderful friendships out of that work. And so I'm really grateful for everything that that network has done for me. Um, and as now past president, I you know have really tried hard to facilitate that for others as well. It's important within a state consortium, but like geographically for me, I'm, I'm pretty disconnected from a lot of the rest of the state of Illinois. And in turn, I've built relationships with people in Tennessee, Kentucky, Missouri, that all route well, that we're outside of each other's territories. And so crossing those state borders and, and getting to know who is around and who you can route with that makes sense and building those relationships. But that's something that you kind of have to take the initiative to do on your own. It took me a long time to learn that I needed to do that. And I now have those relationships, but it took me a long time to get there. Yeah. So another thing that she was talking about in um, being a strategy consultant and that most of some of the, the things that she's working with organizations about is on communication, her observation about what has changed since the pandemic of everybody wanting to be back in a show and wanting to come together, but having like these very real time limits on just like their um, their ability to be present in like an in-person situation is something that's really interesting that I think really honestly existed before the pandemic, but nobody wanted to admit it, right? Because we're all hustling and we all are going to sit in that six hour meeting. But it is so nice now to be able to have a conversation like that. That's like, actually, I just need to go and be in my own space. <laughs> Bouncing off of that, the change in interpersonal communication, um, being in person, being virtual, having to like actually talk about communication um, and the work that Christy has done with some organizations I thought was really fascinating. Like we don't think to talk about communication and our own interpersonal communication styles, but man, coming back in person into our offices, into our spaces, collaborating again with partners, it has really changed how we relate to one another. So I really appreciated everything she offered up in that vein during our conversation as well. 
I just wanted to thank Christy for all of her time and for the wonderful conversation. I know I personally really admire her and really had a wonderful time chatting. So thank you all for joining us today on There's No Business Like, and we'll see you next time. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Van Hoek. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslike.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? (laughs) I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus I miss every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. I can't believe I gave the story about me in a golden speedo. <laughs> I think I come with Mary Poppins. Yeah, like, I'm like Kevin. <laughs> 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 yeah, can we find that? <laughs> no. Are there photos of this? Yeah, no. seriously. Yeah, you got just, and no, they're literally and it's a berry hunt. And like, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, we, need, we need more viewers. <laughs> I think it would really help. <laughs>